Karen, I know only too well the problem of trying to say everything you want to say in such a short time. I, since we've gone to three services, I've been uh, cut back to half an hour, and I've never in my whole life said anything in half an hour. <laughs> feel like the poet from Japan whose poetry no one could scan. When told it was so, he said, yes, I know, but I try to get as many words in the last line as I can. <laughs> I uh, went to see Karen, uh, I guess it was Tuesday or Wednesday, in a hospital, and she had her head was shaved. She looked like a little monk, monk with a tonsure. And when I walked in the room, she said, I look just like you. <laughs> well, we've been uh, working at ways to get the bugs out of our marriage, uh, or to use what might be a more appropriate analogy. Um, the uh, figure in Song of Songs of uh, taking care of the foxes that are spoiling the grapes, the little vandals that, that uh, attack our marriages and steal away our happiness. The moods, the attitudes, the actions that destroy the oneness that God had in mind. And uh, the thing I've wanted to get across perhaps more than anything is simply that we have to go back to Scripture and rely upon biblical principles as a foundation for building a marriage. Our tendency over and over again is to play it by ear or to listen to uh, what, what we hear sec- from secular counselors, some of which may be true and valid and helpful, but some of, some of it is, is contrary to Scripture. And so we need to get our clues from uh, God's Word and our wisdom. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter 3? 1 Peter 3. Uh, I mentioned uh, two weeks ago that I was a little hard on the men, and uh, this morning uh, we're going to do something on the distaff side. I should have told you men to be sure and get your wives here this morning. Talk about the responsibilities of uh, the wife in the relationship. 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without talk by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment only, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who who obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. Uh, I have a friend who tells me that his wife calls him Lord, except she pronounces it Lard. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives according to knowledge or in an understanding uh, manner and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing can, uh, may hinder your prayers. It's always good to set these passages in their context and uh, the context of this passage is the immediately preceding paragraph where uh, Peter says in uh, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I personally don't like the New International Version's translation of this word as pagan. Uh, pagan is a, is a derogatory term. We should never use that word to refer to non-Christians, never. Uh, particularly in modern English, it refers to someone who's crude and uncouth and sort of a Philistine. Uh, the word actually is foreigner in, in Greek. It's the word ethnos. We get our word ethnic from it, pertaining to races. And uh, it's, a, it's an appropriate way of referring to those who are outside the family of God. Uh, we would say today non-Christians are unbelievers. It seems to me that that's the terminology we, we ought to use rather than some denigrating uh, reference like this. They're not pagans. They're non-Christians or unchurched people. Now, Peter's point is that uh, if, you, if you want to win the world outside of Christ, this is the way to do it. You live what he calls the good life. And the good life is further defined here as uh, submission to every authority. Verse 13, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. It must be then that submission is a, is a mark of grace. It's a supernatural quality, and, and, and indeed it is. Uh, I, I don't like to be submissive. I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm independent. I, I'm resourceful. I, I don't like to be told what to do. I don't even like my car to buzz me and tell me to strap my seatbelt. It irritates me. That's the way we are by nature. We supernaturally are changed as Christ comes to dwell in our personalities, and we become more submissive people. Submission is not a mark of, of weakness. Submission is strength under control. Non-retaliatory, non-defensive is the idea. Now, that's a mark of grace. And Peter's point is that if we are ruled by the Spirit of God, if we are truly gracious people, we will be submissive to every human institution. And then he spells out three illustrations of the type of, of, of authority, and particularly unjust authority, to which we ought to submit. The state in 13 through 17, and, and we'll talk about that uh, at some later point. Uh, masters, uh, unjust uh, slave masters in, in verses 18 and following, and wives to non-Christian husbands in chapter 3. And the center of this is the illustration of Christ. Verse 21, chapter 2, verse 21. To this, that is to uh, suffering under unjust uh, authority you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow on his steps he committed no sin no deceit was found in his mouth that's a quotation from, from Isaiah 53 but it was applied to Jesus he was a sinless man he was impeccable he did nothing wrong and yet uh, when he was unjustly treated when they hurled their insults at him Peter says he didn't retaliate when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, that is an illustration. That is uh, Exhibit A, a premier illustration of what it means to be subject to unjust authority. Jesus was the most manly man that ever lived, but he didn't defend himself. That was uh, enormous strength, infinite strength under control. And Peter says that's the mark of the good life to be a submissive person. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Wives, in the same way. That is, in the same manner in which uh, our Lord reacted to unjust authority, to the worst sort of injustice, 
See, though, though he was sinless, he was treated as a common criminal, and yet he submitted himself. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, I don't suppose you like that. I don't like being told I, I need to be submissive to unjust authority. But uh, if you have an argument, you, you, it's with an in, inspired apostle. This is not an enraged husband that's speaking here. This is an inspired apostle. And if you have a quarrel, take it up with Peter. Uh, you'll have to take it up with Paul, too, because he says the same thing in Ephesians 5, where the issue there is clearly two Christians living together in a relationship, where it's not Christian wife, non-Christian husband. It's Christian wife, Christian husband. He says, wives, be submissive. Same uh, root, same verb. Be submissive to your husbands. I, I didn't make that up. That, that's there in the text. And it's a present tense verb. It's keep on being submissive. Now, the New Testament does not teach that women are to be submissive to men in general. That simply is not true. Women can be president of the United States. They can be on the Supreme Court. They can be the head of corporations. No problem. But in the home, Peter, Paul, our Lord, tell us that the wife is to be submissive to her husband. Now, that means to submit your will. I, I, I don't know how to soften that. That's simply what it says, submit your will. Now, that does not mean that men have the right to run roughshod over their wives. Their goal, as we've said over and over again, is to, is to seek what's best for their wives, to, to pursue God's will with all of their hearts. It's a little hard for me to, to justify uh, the fact that it's God's will for me to buy another fly rod or four-wheel drive vehicle or whatever, when I already have two or three fly rods in the, in the closet. It's not, it's not the pursuit of our own will. That's not the point. It's not getting our way. It's, uh, it's acting out of truth, pursuing God's will for our family. And when their chips are down, uh, it's, it's the wife who must give up her will to the husband. Now, Peter does balance it out. He feathers out the edges a little bit here in, uh, in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives according to knowledge. That is, in an understanding way, understanding what women are like. We, we men cannot say, I, I, I can never understand women. That's a cop-out. can't say that. Peter says, you have to understand them. And he goes on to explain them. Uh, they are the weaker vessel. Now, he does not say weak vessel. It's all the difference in the world in the terminology that Peter uses. Weak is the absolute degree. That would imply that men are strong and women are weak. But he says they're the weaker vessel. That's the comparative degree. We're weak. We need God, but women are weaker. Now, it's a little bit dangerous to speculate because Scripture doesn't tell us in what way they're weaker. That's uh, left up to us, and it may even be a cultural thing to some extent where those weaknesses show up. But I, I think there's one constant, and here I am speculating because Scripture doesn't tell us. But I think they're weaker in, this, in, in the sense that they are more vulnerable to ego damage. They can be crushed more easily by the circumstances of life, by the cares of, of family and household and, and whatnot. And, and therefore, men need to be aware of that fact. And rather than crush them further... Uh, build them up. Honor them, he says. Respect them. Put them on a pedestal. Treat them as something special. Uh, don't, don't further crush them. Treat them as the, as the weaker vessel. 
I think Peter probably learned that the hard way. He came in one night from a long day of fishing, and he hadn't eaten all day. He was ravenous. Wanders into the kitchen, forgets to give Mrs. Peter a hug and a kiss, and, and he picks up the uh, lid on the skillet, and he says, Oh, no, not perch again. <laughs> we had perch last night. And depending upon the type of woman that Mrs. Peter was, she either uh, gave him a laser-like look and and uh, ran out of the room, or she broke into tears or what. I don't know. Women are all different. But but uh, Peter stood there and said, What what did I do? Uh, <laughs> and then he went to Mrs. Peter, and he said, What, what did I do? And she said, Nothing. He said, oh, oh, come on, I know I did something. Oh, I didn't do anything. <laughs> but, see, Peter, Peter understood what he had done is crush her ego. She'd been working on that perch all afternoon. That was for him. So he goes out in the backyard in the garden, and he cuts a little flower, and he takes it back to the bedroom, and he gives it to her, and he gives her a big hug and a kiss, and, and he tells her he really does appreciate everything she's doing for him, and, and things begin to get a little better. Now, that's what it means to live with your wife according to understanding. Since she is the weaker vessel, and he says, treat her as an heir, uh, a fellow heir of the gracious gift of life. I, it is true that, that uh, marriages are egalitarian in the sense that they're equalitarian. We're equal. We're both heirs of eternal life. But it's not a democracy. See, that's, where we go, that's where we go awry. There has to be a head. Somebody has to lead. Somebody has to be in charge. Now, it's not that men call all the shots and go through the house like General Patton with a swagger stick and demand that everybody stand up, shape up, and do their will. That's not the point. See, we, we lead after the model of Christ, who is a servant. We give up our lives for our wives, but they must give in their wills, even if we're wrong, which puts an enormous responsibility on us as men. Now, I don't know how to soften that. That's just what Peter says. Keep on, present tense, keep on being submissive to your husbands. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without a word. Now, this is not an unqualified promise. He is not saying that every non-Christian husband will be one in this manner. He's saying that if he is to be one at all, this is the way it will be done. He's playing on the word word, actually. He says, though they are disobedient, or actually the word is unpersuadable with reference to the word. They don't want your Lord. They don't want anything to do with him. Even though they're unpersuadable with reference to the word, they will be one without a word. The problem is that men tend to talk not enough, and women tend to talk too much. And that's what Peter is saying. And it's non-productive. It doesn't work. It's counterproductive. In short, what Peter is saying is don't nag. The worst thing you can do is nag. You can communicate your needs. It's not saying you have to shut your mouth and never say anything. It's just saying don't, don't kill a guy with words. That's why. Don't keep saying the same thing over and over again. Don't nag him. Because most men will either give in 
and then resent it, or they'll become more stubborn. That's our sinful nature. We don't like to be nagged. Nobody likes that. So if you want to change your man, it's not by words. It's by, it's an, there's another method. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, the kingdom of God does not come through words, but through power. There's another way to get the job done. It's not by talking. Talking will just make things worse. I heard of a man who, who frequently referred to his wife as Peg. And that seemed odd because her name was Floella May. And uh, <clears throat> somebody asked him, why, why do you call your wife Peg? He says, well, it's short for Pegasus. He said, well, I don't understand. Well, Pegasus is, uh, you know, is that horse in uh, Greek mythology, the flying horse. He says, Pegasus is, is, is a, an immortal horse. And an immortal horse is an everlasting nag, and that's Fluella May. <laughs> So use words sparingly. Don't be a nag. Don't think that your words are going to change your man. They won't. They won't. Well, you may get some external superficial change, but it'll be grudging. And it won't be from the heart. How then do you do it? Well, it's just by the behavior of the wife. And he spells that out through in a number of characteristics. First, purity. When they see the purity in reverence of your lives. By purity, he means sexual purity, chastity, be chaste. Not as Carolyn says, C-H-A-S-E-D, but C-H-A-S-T-E, be chaste. The, uh, the temptation on the part of, of women who are uh, unloved is to look for love some other place, to be, become unfaithful, to have an affair, because they, they desperately are looking for love. You know the old adage, men use love to get sex. That's the natural man. Women use sex to get love. They, 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 they are unsatisfied. They're not being loved. And so they go looking for it some other place. But it doesn't work. It never works. It just leaves them satisfied longing and a lot of guilt. It's not the answer. He says the thing to do is to be chaste, to be pure, and secondly, to be reverent. That's the Old Testament word for a God-fearing person, someone who, who knows and loves and, and worships God. In other words, let God be your partner. Let him satisfy you fully. Literally, the line reads, chaste in fear. In other words, it's the fear of God or the reverence of God that enables you to be, to be pure. It's letting him fulfill your unsatisfied longings. You know what Proverbs says? Uh, uh, charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord will be uh, praised. We all know women who are just strikingly beautiful women whose husbands have walked off and left them because that beauty doesn't hold. It may attract, but it doesn't hold. The only beauty that holds is that inner beauty, as Peter describes it here, that chaste, holy, reverent behavior. He goes on to spell it out as in terms of beauty, in verse uh, 3, your beauty should not come from, from outward adornment only. There's nothing wrong with wearing nice clothes, wearing jewelry. He's not prohibiting that sort of thing. That's not the point. He's just saying that shouldn't be the limit of your beauty. Your beauty should not be merely skin deep. 
Instead, he says, verse 4, it should be that uh, of the inner self, that unfading beauty of a gentle and, and quiet spirit. That's, that's a beauty that endures. The outward beauty fades. We all know that. But there is an inward beauty that, that's enduring. And he describes it here as uh, the beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, those are not solely feminine traits. There are a number of other, of other places in the New Testament where those same characteristics are uh, applied or commanded uh, for men. The word uh, gentle means non-defensive or unassuming, meek. The word quiet doesn't mean silent. It means restful, peaceful. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 2 when he says we ought to pray to kings that we'll have a peaceful, restful life. Uh, not anxious, not uptight, resting in God, and gentle, non-defensive, non-retaliatory, like, as, our, as our Lord was. In fact, this is the word that's used to describe the Lord when he came uh, into Jerusalem uh, riding on a donkey. He says he was, uh, he was humble and unassuming, this word. So it, it's, a, it's a male quality as well as a female quality. We ought all of us to be gentle and peaceful. Instead of being riled up and angry and resentful and, and hostile toward a husband who's mistreating us, he says we need to be poised and peaceful, quiet, gentle, non-defensive. If he is to be one at all, Peter says, that's how he would be one. Uh, he uses a great illustration here of Sarah. This is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Sarah was a beautiful woman. When she was in her 90s, the uh, pharaoh of Egypt was attracted to her physically. But Peter says that, that really was not her, her beauty. She had a, an inner beauty. She used to make herself beautiful in this way. She was submissive to her husband. She obeyed Abraham. And called him Lord. Now, if you know anything about Abraham, he was not the best of husbands. He uh, uh, jeopardized her purity and almost jeopardized her life on a couple of occasions. He lied about her, said uh, she was his sister, which was a half lie. She was his half sister, but he was trying to protect himself, and she ended up in Pharaoh's harem, and and, and God protected her. She, she shouldn't have done that, but she didn't have the, the light that we have today. She didn't have the amount of revelation that we have. She didn't know any better. She just obeyed her husband. Now, women don't have to obey their, hus- their wives today if, if their husbands are asking them to do things contrary to Scripture. That's where they can draw the line and, and respectfully say, no, I can't do that. But up to the point that, uh, that they violate Scripture, Peter says they, they, they need to obey, just like Sarah. She called her husband Lord. And the interesting thing is, in going back to the incident which Peter is referring to here, when she called him Lord, it was when Abraham was camped in the uh, forest of Mamre and, and uh, the Lord appeared to him and told him that he would have a son. And Sarah was in the tent. She overheard the conversation and she laughed because Abraham was too old to have a son. And she had already gone through the menopause. And she said, it's impossible. So she laughed. She said, how can my Lord have a son at his age? And the significant thing is that she said it in her mind. She did not merely regard him as Lord in public, but in her heart she acknowledged him as Lord. 
It's one thing to call your, your husband Lord in public, and another thing around the house to say, Hey, Lord, get over here. <laughs> so it misses the whole point. She was genuinely respectful. And Abraham uh, never did really hit the long ball when it came to being a husband. He had a lot of problems right to the end. But she was submissive to him. And uh, Peter says, you're her daughters. There really ought to be a guild of Abraham's daughters, I think. There are Job's daughters and all sorts of other groups. But uh, there, there ought to be a, a category of Abraham's, uh, of Sarah's daughters. And in fact, there is. Peter says, you're her daughters. If you do what is right, that is, if you submit to your husband, even though he's wrong, even though he's selfish, even though he has not taken into consideration your needs, you're, you're one of Sarah's daughters. You're like Sarah if you do what is right and you don't give way to fear. You know what, what prevents you from acting like Sarah? You get afraid. It's all like, Claude's going to ruin us financially. He's going to destroy the children. He's going to crush their little lids. I've got to do something. I've got to take over. If I don't run the family, the whole thing is going to crash one of these days. You get afraid. But what Sarah did was entrust herself to God. She didn't trust Abraham. She trusted God. She hoped in God. And see, that's what redeems the situation. Your husband will always disappoint you. Even the best of husbands with the best of intentions will disappoint you. But if you're one of Sarah's daughters, you'll trust God. Count on him to work. You'll pray for your husband because prayer not only moves mountains, it moves men. It, it does change. Change them. And you'll live out your life before them as Sarah did, that, that imperishable beauty of a gentle and, and quiet spirit. And you'll love him no matter what he's like. I... You know, there, there's no real reason why I think a woman has to take physical beatings or e even protracted emotional beatings. I, I think there are times when you may need to separate for a time. We'll talk more about that next week. Sometimes that's, that's the only way you can get some time to heal and, and then you go back into the situation again. Peter's point is that you stay with the marriage. You don't get a divorce just because you're being mistreated. And you may, he says, win your husband by being like Sarah. Through your behavior. Through God displaying himself through your personality. Someone asked me last week um, how you live with the pain. And I have no, no easy answers. A lot of you I know are living with, uh, with non-Christian husbands. And in many cases, they're good husbands kind men, but still there's that pain of, of knowing that at the very heart of things you're not, you're not together. Some of you I know are living in situations where your husbands are not thoughtful and you're not receiving the, the sort of love that, that, you, that you are looking for. How do you live with that kind of pain? Well, first of all, you need to know that God will not permit you to have more pain than you can bear. That's what Paul says. He will not permit you to be tempted or tested beyond the point of endurance. He doesn't say that, uh, that, you, that you won't be tempted beyond the point you think you can endure. But he does say it will not be beyond the point of endurance. You can take it in Christ. You can handle it. And secondly, 
you can, as Jesus did, have an eternal perspective on things. You can look through the pain to the glory. Hebrews says that he, uh, for the glory that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. You can realize that the pain you're experiencing is building Christ-like character in you, and it's preparing for you, as I said last week, an exceeding weight of glory. You know, at times, just this little thing that occupies a very small uh, part, really, of our, eternal, of, our, of our eternal existence. It's all working for you to produce a greater weight of glory. And you don't want to forfeit that, that glory, that greater glory, for some momentary earthly happiness. You, you want to let God work in you and through you to accomplish the greater end he has in mind. So you can endure the pain, and you can let God be your be your partner and meet your needs in every way. Paul says, My God shall supply your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Those are infinite riches, infinite resources that are available to you. And then finally, you can hope in God that, that your husband will be, will be redeemed. It, it's always possible. It's not a promise, but it's always possible. Uh, some of you know Wayne Yamamoto. Uh, Wayne and uh, Risa work with our junior high kids, and Wayne is quite a fisherman. And uh, he was telling me a few weeks ago he went up to Cascade Lake to do some ice fishing, and the ice was about 18 inches thick, and he didn't want to chop a very big hole, so he just cut a hole about the size of a coffee can. And uh, they caught a number of small fish, and then... Uh, uh, all of a sudden, he got this monster on his line. Hole disappeared down in the hole, and he started hauling the fish in. And when he pulled the fish up through the hole, it wedged in the hole. It was about a, a seven or eight pound rainbow, and it and it wedged in the hole just behind its gills. All they could see was just the top of the head like this. And here was this enormous fish hanging down the hole, and he couldn't get it through the hole. And uh, finally, he, the thing broke off and fell back down into the, the river, and he lost it. The moral of that story is, don't make your hole too small. <laughs> Hope in God. He can do exceeding abundantly above anything you could ever ask or think. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to uh, trust you. Teach us to distrust ourselves and our own wisdom and our tendency to uh, go our own way and, and turn our back on the truth that you've given to us that does indeed set us free. Help us to be obedient men and women who, who trust your word and who rely upon your power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.